today is the second day of our summer seven day session, 10th of January 2021. And we're going to continue uh, reading from Swampland Flowers, the letters and lectures of Zen Master Da Hui, uh, translated by Christopher Cleary. take up a passage called uh, Contemplating a Saying. As I said yesterday, these are, are um, excerpts from uh, letters Master Dawei wrote to his disciples, and the translator has added uh, titles to the different passages. So this one is entitled um, Contemplating a Saying. Before emotional consciousness has been smashed, the mind fire burns bright. At just such a time, take up a saying you have doubts about to arouse and awaken yourself. For example, a monk asked Zhao Zhou, does a dog have a Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou said, Mu. Um, he starts off by saying, before emotional consciousness has been smashed. Um, this is also known as subjective emotional consciousness. Um, you could say it's, it's, um, it's all our, our memories and habit patterns and preferences and opinions uh, that have been shaped by our emotional reactions to things. And... Um, in turn, uh, color and and create the the world we uh, that we experience uh, because and in this quite persistence because we we attach to these things subjective emotional consciousness. We take um, a lot of what we experience to be real when it is. Um, highly coloured by this, this is subjective emotional consciousness. Um, Dahui talks about it being smashed. Um, and perhaps a better way of understanding it or, um, is to say um, we, we uh, see through this consciousness of ours. We understand it to be um, in many ways, illusory. And when we, of course, when we can do that, then it no longer has power over us. But he's talking about before it's been smashed. He says, before um, emotional consciousness has been smashed, the mind fire burns bright. What is the mind fire? One way of labeling it would be to say that the, the passions... Hot, agitated, destructive. This is the, these characteristics of fire and of our mind fire too. Another way would be to just say the poisons, the three poisons, greed, hatred and delusion. Um, the, the, the word nirvana um, means extinguished. And what is extinguished is... Uh, exactly this mind fire passions in the sense of um, uh, our, our subjective emotional consciousness so he's, he presents this this uh, gives a description of our illness you could say this this brightly burning mind fire that, that causes us so much pain and says, okay, just at, at the very time when it's, it's flared up, just take a saying you have doubts about and, and through that saying arouse and awaken yourself. And then he, he brings up our old favorite, for example, a monk asked Zhao Zhou, Joshu, does a dog have the Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou said Mu. Um, 
before we go on anymore, we can just it can be helpful to um, clarify what what we mean when we say Buddha nature. At least in as as much as it can be put in words, um, is a very um, useful um, explanation of this in. Um, one of Master Shen Yin's books, and it's headed up, Chan and Buddha Nature. It'd be hard to get a better summary than this. He says, what is the basic concept of Chan? The key intention is to experience Buddha Nature, everlasting and pervasive. What is this Buddha Nature? It can be called the nature of emptiness. The nature of emptiness is neither an absence of phenomena, nor is it nothingness. Important point, the nature of emptiness is neither an absence of phenomena, nor is it nothingness. Rather, the key sense of this term is impermanence. There is no permanent person, me, you, or anyone else. Nobody is everlasting or unchanging. In addition, there is no everlasting, unchanging environment. We say that because both self and environment are impermanent, they are empty of inherent existence. There's no essence that we can pin down and, and uh, point to as being unchanging. Putting it another way, we say that we cannot predicate existence as a constant property of anything because nothing is ever still, ever the same. It's, a, it's a, an odd way of putting it, but it is, it is uh, vivid. We cannot predicate existence as a constant property of anything. We could say that about ourselves. We th our existence seems so fundamental, so, so um, central to our experience. We exist, right? But actually it's, it's not essential to us because at a certain point we won't exist, at least not in this form. Nothing is ever still, ever the same. Existence is like a river. It seems to be there, but the water we see is never the same. Think of um, Heraclitus' famous saying, you can't step twice into the same river. No, no such thing as the same river. And each of us is a river. What is emptiness empty of? This is the key question. Something is empty when we see it as having no thingness. It is not an entity in itself separate from the rest of existence. It is not an entity in itself separate from the rest of existence. And yet we lead most of our lives firmly believing that that, that is true of ourselves. It is always engaged in the flowing, changing whole that is the universe. In the practice of Chan, the phrase seeing the nature means experiencing the reality of the flowing aspect of everything. Uh, seeing the nature is um, an English way of, um, of uh, expressing Kensho. That's the Japanese uh, form. I'm not sure right now what the, the Chinese form of it is, but... Um, 
seeing the nature. We see the reality of emptiness in the disappearance of the conception of one's mind as a thing. We're not saying that there is nothing there at all. It is simply that perceiving things as things is an error in attribution, meaning fixed, solid, delineated. Things are as they are. A mobile thusness is their nature. It is crucial to have some insight into these ideas, otherwise we cannot conceive of the meaning of enlightenment or why we are practicing with such a conceptual background. An enlightenment experience is a moment when seeing the nature is directly apprehended, not as an idea, a hope, a trance state, a form of samadhi, but totally, immediately, in actuality, with no interference from a dualistic sense of self in play with otherness. Without a personal realization of the nature of emptiness, our worries, anxieties, fixations, projections, and transference all appear as true experiences or as in entities that we cannot let go of. In other words, our, our subjective emotional consciousness rears its ugly head. Grief Jealousy, arrogance and doubts continue as we go on believing the objects and events which gave rise to them are in some sense solid, historical and real. Someone who has seen the nature has let go of these vexations and, at least in that moment without vexation, has known enlightenment. When a practitioner experiences a deep enlightenment, self-centeredness, even as an illusion, comes to an end. Do not fear that in such a state nothing exists. It is in fact a state pervaded by a life of happiness and bliss expressed in compassion and wisdom. It's a state pervaded by vividness, by, th by things uh, radiating just as they are. As beginning practitioners, we are, of course, still engaged <coughs> in self-centered action and in self-consciousness. We could say more self-partiality, self-obsession. Everything, we turn everything we encounter into, into a story with uh, the, our eye, our fabricated eye at the center. still engage in self-centered action and in self-consciousness, an awareness that still takes oneself as the most important thing in the world and for which all events that affirm the value of one's being comprise the mental the material of our attachments to objects and other persons. Since nothing holds together for long, these attachments are continuously producing vexations for us. A painful body is a vexation. Psychological problems are vexations. When others do not affirm our opinion of ourselves, that too is vexatious. Yet, while this self-conscious concern lies at the root of vexation, it is also the starting point for practice and for letting go of those very attachments that are the roots of vexatious living. A very important point here, one that is, is um, paraphrased in, um, in the saying, when I fall down, I use the ground to get up.
Our task is to use the ego to go beyond the ego. A strong ego provides a platform on which to begin determined practice. While on uh, the one hand we seek to go beyond attachment, on the other hand we use this very existence as a basis for a transcendent transcendence. In other words, uh, we use um, this uh, self which is attached. So don't feel discouraged if you have a you think you have a particularly thorny um, ego. Grist for the mill. All kinds of um, ego qualities can be applied when we undertake spiritual practice. Uh, determination. Patience. intelligence, many others. Again, Xing Yin puts it so well. He says, we use this very existence as a basis for transcendence. And actually, how else could it be if you if you think about the, the, the fundamental teaching of the Heart Sutra, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness no other than form. Two sides of one coin. If we want to realize emptiness, no better place than right here in the midst of form. Forms of all kinds. Xing Yin continues, the base, basic concepts of Chan are also the root concepts of Buddhism. Essentially, we have been speaking here of what Gautama Buddha himself realized sitting beneath the Bodhi tree. Life is suffering. Suffering is due to addictive attachment to a false conception of oneself and the things of this life that support or threaten that self. There is a way beyond this condition that transcends the fears of impermanence and that way is the practice itself. It seems very simple, does it not? The only problem is that it is indeed difficult to let go of our attachments. We need to use the methods of practice and inform our lives with their meaning. Concept, practice and transcendence are all related. So, as he says, we, we, we need practices such as working on a koan, shikantaza, becoming one with the breath, because it is indeed difficult to let go of our attachments and we have these methods which um, create the right conditions for that letting go. Now turning back to um, Master Dahui. So Master Dahui here is, is, point, is uh, speaking to this very point of um, a practice that can, with which we can um, begin to work with, with our subjective emotional consciousness. 
uh, uh, poisons, the three poisons. So he says, take up, take up a, a phrase, a saying about which you have doubts. In other words, about which you you feel perplexed, where you feel this this need to understand. So the the koan mu is um, about Buddha nature. What is it? How do I realize it in my daily life? Just bring this this up to arouse and awaken yourself. Whatever side you come at it from, it's not it. You're wrong. Moreover, don't use mind to wait enlightenment. So he, he, he does this repeatedly. He kind of um, points to all the different ways that we work with with Mu or other koans that um, don't work. So he says, don't use the mind to await enlightenment. So imagine, in other words, imagining enlightenment as being something out there that's going to come. And you shouldn't understand it as original subtlety or discuss it as existent or non-existent or assess it as the nothingness of true nothingness. And you shouldn't sit in the bag of unconcern. This is, um, again, referring to just getting into a, a, a fairly pleasant, quiet um, state, but not giving rise to um, uh, this real investigative mind. Which really applies in both in both koan work and in uh, shikantaza, it's it's expressed more as this this um, uh, questioning in koan work, but in shikantaza it's this illuminating quality of of um, holding uh, one's awareness uh, brightly, being vigilant. And you shouldn't understand it as uh, sparks struck from stone or in the brilliance of a lightning flash. There should be no place to employ your mind. And this is really the point. He, he, he makes all these prohibitions as a, as, as a way to stymie us because he's pointing out that, that is it working in this way is about going beyond our usual ways of using our minds, in, in other words, our, our discriminating minds, mind with a small m. He continues, when there's no place for mind, don't be afraid of falling into emptiness. On the contrary, this is a good place. Suddenly the rat enters a hollow ox horn and then wrong views are cut off. Uh, Quite a few people, when they get deeper into practice, may approach a, a state of emptiness and then pull back from it. This, this um, uh, fear can, can um, um, arise, but, but it's not, um, it's unfounded really, this fear. Falling into emptiness is actually a stage along along the path of seeing into the koan. Suddenly the rat enters a hollow ox horn and then wrong views are cut off. This um, uh, image of the, the uh, rat entering the ox horn, apparently in ancient times... Um, if you wanted to catch a rat, what you'd do is you'd take a, a hollow ox horn and you'd, you'd get some tasty morsel of something and you'd push it right down into the, into the narrowest part of the horn and then you'd put the, this horn out in the path of the rat 
and rat would go go smell whatever had been put in the in the very farthest reaches of the horn and and um, go into the ox horn and then be pushing to try and get that that morsel and and um, then the, you could you could it'd be so heedless in its effort to to get to this this um, titbit that it, you'd be able to uh, catch it. And this this image is used as um, way of describing the state that um, the that uh, one needs to get into to um, uh, get beyond all our wrong views. We get so absorbed in the question, so curious, so so um, gripped by perplexity that. Um, there's no place anymore for all our all our views. This affair is neither difficult nor easy. Only if you have already planted deep the seeds of transcendent wisdom and served people of knowledge through vast eons without beginning and developed correct knowledge and correct views does it strike you continuously in your present conduct as you meet situations and encounter circumstances in the midst of radiant, radiant spiritual consciousness, like recognizing your own parents in a crowd of people? At such a time, you don't have to ask anyone else. Naturally, the seeking mind does not scatter and run off. So um, he's saying that Only if we have led um, really the life of a bodhisattva, life after life after life, and um, and and had um, many great teachers through those lives, um, through vast eons without beginning, and really developed developed our our view as a correct view and our and our knowledge as correct knowledge. Only then will we be you'd say, continuously living out of Buddha nature. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, it's intermittent. It's maybe little flashes of understanding here and there. And so we have, we have lots of work to do to um, uh, make this, this understanding of Buddha nature actually something that's functional in our lives. There's lots of work to do, in other words. The next um, one we're going to look at <coughs> is entitled um, Two Awakenings. In the old days, the venerable Yin Yang asked Zhao Zhou, what's it like when not bringing a single thing? Zhao Zhou said, put it down. Yin Yang said, since not a thing, single thing is brought, put what down? Zhou said, if you can't put it down, pick it up. Another, another version of this is, if you can't put it down, take it away. At these words, Yin Yang was greatly enlightened. And I'll just stick with the, um, the Chinese names in this, in this um, text and, and just give you the Japanese ones when I know them. Again, a monk asked an ancient worthy, What's it like when the student can't cope? The ancient worthy said, I too am like this. The monk said, Teacher, why can't you cope either? The ancient worthy said, If I could cope, I could take away this inability to cope of yours. At these words, the monk was greatly enlightened. 
Let's have a little look at these these two stories. There's a lot in them, a lot to them. First of all, this this first one where the where the, the monk asks Joshu, Zhao Zhou, uh, what's it like when not bringing a single thing? What's it like when I'm completely empty? And Joshi says, put it down. We have this um, uh, very uh, strong habit of um, turning nothing into something and then attaching to it. So even even we do this even with the experience of emptiness. Maybe we get into a very um, spacious place and, and of course then it passes and we, if at least the first few times this happens, we then uh, get so caught up in wanting to get back to that place. And of course we got there in the first place because we weren't um, trying to get somewhere. And we've turned that so-called nothing into a something. And we do this with ourselves. We, we um, something, something goes well in our lives and we, we congratulate ourselves, ourselves. We puff up. We, come in, we become self-important. And of course we're setting ourselves up in that regard in terms of when something bad happens. Then we're going to beat ourselves up and feel bad inadequate failure second story what is it like when the student can't cope You can imagine this this student, no doubt, is feeling discouraged, struggling, and so he he comes to the to the the teacher looking for something, some some answer, some help, and he receives it, but but no doubt not in the way that he had imagined. Because the, 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 the master replies, I too am like this. And then the monk says, but teacher, why can't you cope either? Surely you're the teacher, you're supposed to have got all the answers. And the teacher says, if I could cope, I could take away this inability to cope of yours. If I could cope, I could take away your suffering. And yet so much is out of our control. We live in a, in a world where there are vast forces at work across vast periods of time. Movements of tectonic plates, tsunamis, floods, fires, meteor strikes, pandemics, sicknesses of all kinds. So much that is, is beyond our control. And yet we, we, we so very often have this kind of delusion that, that we are in control, or we, or we try to be even if it's only in just some little little areas of our lives. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, obsessive-compulsive behaviors come out of that, creating little, little areas of, of 
control, but in actual fact, we're not in control. Even there, we're we're compelled to do that. Last evening, I was talking about this first painting by Antonello Damasina, um, Ichi Homo. Uh, Behold a human being is one translation of that title I, I saw. I'm, I didn't mention that he, of course, has, because he's Christ, also has a crown of thorns. We suffer. We're so vulnerable. And yet there is there is also choice. We have choices within this this world, so much of which is out of control our control. Because in this story when when the teacher says if I could cope I could take away this inability to cope of yours. At these words, the student is greatly enlightened. What is it that he hears in what his teacher says that liberates him? What does he realize? Dahwe continues, <coughs> The enlightenment of these two monks is precisely where you are lost. Where you have doubts is exactly where these two monks ask their questions. Phenomena are born from discrimination and also perish through discrimination. Wipe out all phenomena of discrimination. This Dharma has no birth or destruction. If we wipe out all discrimination, all dualistic labeling of things, what remains? What is it that's left after we do that? What is it that can't be destroyed? No one can give us the answers to these questions. The next section is, is called There is no second person. <clears throat> you say that you have dull faculties. Try to reflect back like this. See if the one who can recognize the dullness is dull too or not. If you don't turn the light around and reflect back, you're just keeping to your dull faculties and adding more affliction. That would be adding illusory falsehood to illusory falsehood, laying on optical illusion on top of optical illusion. Just listen. The one who can know that sense faculties are inherently dull is definitely not dull. Though you shouldn't hold to this dull one, you shouldn't abandon it to study either, grasping and rejecting, sharp and dull, 
these have to do with people, not with mind. This mind is one substance with all the Buddhas of the three worlds. There is no duality. If there were duality, the Dharma would not be of even sameness. Receiving the teaching and transmitting mind are both empty falsehoods. Looking for truth and seeking reality seem even further off. Just realize that mind with a single essence and no duality definitely does not lie within sharp or dull or grasping and rejecting. Then you'll see the moon and forget the finger, immediately making a clean break. If you linger further in thought, calculating before and after, then you're still understanding the empty fist as if it had held something real. Falsely concocting strange things amidst the phenomena of the sense objects, vainly confining yourself within matter, sensation, perception, volition and consciousness, within the elements of sensory experience, you'll never get done. So he refers here to the five skandhas, in other words, the, the um, uh, components of the body and the mind, and says, um, you, you'll never get done, you'll just be bogged down if you um, stay um, stuck in these, in these um, aspects of, of um, conditioned existence. next passage is entitled, It's Just You. I take it that you have shut your gate and suspended your dealings with people, leaving aside all worldly affairs to arouse yourself day and night with the sayings I suggested to you. Very good, very good. So he's writing to somebody who's... Um, in private retreat, shut, your, shut the gate and suspended all dealings with people. Just as we have um, shut the gate and just suspended all our dealings with people except those in the Sishin. And we do, we do um, leave aside our worldly affairs, put them down. The, for the length of the, the session. Of course, we will take them up again when we, when we leave. But for this, this time to drop all um, our normal concerns, all our, our thoughts about past and future, and just um, settle into this into this. search or, or effort to reveal our Buddha nature, the nature of emptiness. He continues, in handling this mind, you must take enlightenment as the standard. If you shrink, shrink back, saying your root nature is inferior, and then go on to seek an entry, it is truly being inside the palace, asking where the capital is. Dawei's um, writing many, many, many centuries ago, but how familiar this is to so many of us. If you shrink back, saying your root nature is inferior, many, many of us... Um, are afflicted by such um, ideas about ourselves, even if we rationally understand that they are um, unhelpful and untrue, they can still have their effect on us. And in our in our um, weaker moments, we can believe these things and feel that we are in some way, in some central kind of way, deficient. Dahwei says that if we if we go forth with this this uh, idea, then it's like it's like um, 
being inside the palace, asking where the capital is. Of course, the, the palace is in the, always in the capital. What makes makes the capital a capital? There's a there's a, st a story um, it's told some years ago about about a ship that was um, going up the coast of South America, and they ran out of water, and they were, they were getting more and more desperate. And then they and they um, saw in the distance another uh, ship there, and um, so they they sent a message, signaled a message, saying, "Please, please, can you?" Can you give us water? We're 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 completely out. And the the message that came out was that came back from this other ship was, let down your buckets. Let down your buckets. The point was, the uh, the reason why they got this message was that um, they were in without realizing it they were in the mouth of the Amazon River, and the fresh water continued for kilometers out from, from the mouth of the river into the sea. So they were thirsty, thinking they had no water, but in fact all they had to do was let down their buckets. And it's really the, it's the same for us. Buddha nature is what we are. All we have to do is let down our buckets. That's what practice is. Dahui continues. Right when you're arousing yourself, who is it? And who is it who knows your root nature is inferior or tells you your root nature is inferior? And who is it who is seeking an entry? Not avoiding the mouth work, I'll explain it clearly for you, layman. It's just you, Wang Ying Chang. This is the person he's writing the letter to. There aren't two. There's only one Wang Ying Chang. Where else do we get the one who's arousing himself, and the one who knows his root nature is inferior, the one who seeks an entry? You should know they're all shadows of Wang Yin Chang. They have nothing to do with some other Wang Yin Chang. If it's the real Wang Yin Chang, then necessarily his root nature isn't inferior, and he doesn't seek an entry. Just believe in yourself as your own master. Another letter, this one entitled, Who is in the Way? Your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dull, so that though you make efforts to cultivate and uphold the Dharma, you've never gotten an instant of transcendent enlightenment. The one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. Where else do you want to seek transcendent enlightenment? After all, gentlemen of affairs who study this path must depend on their dimness and dullness to enter. But if you hold to dimness and dullness, considering yourself to be without the qualifications for the path, then you're being controlled by the demons of dimness and dullness. Since those with commonplace understanding often make the intention of seeking transcendent enlightenment into an obstacle set before them, their own correct understanding cannot appear before them. And this obstacle does not come from the outside. It's nothing but the boss man who recognizes the dimness and dullness, the, the master. 
again, he's 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 making the same point for different students over and over again, as as Zen teachers do. Our our job is to keep turning the mind back, and questioning. Who is it that sees, hears, conceptualizes? We don't have to wait until our mind is in good shape to do this, this investigation. Right where we are, right in the midst of what we might think of as dimness and dullness. Or right in the midst of uh, sore knees, drowsiness. Thus, when Master Zuigan was dwelling, uh, this is Jue Yin in, in Chinese, was dwelling constantly in room, in his room, he would call to himself, "Boss," and also would re reply to himself, "Yes, be alert. I will. Hereafter, don't fall for people's deceptions. I won't." Fortunately, since ancient times, there've been such models. This is. Um, this is one of the koans in the um, Muonkan, Zuigon, calls master. Just arouse yourself right here and see what it is. The one who does the arousing isn't anyone else. He's just that, the one that can recognize dimness and dullness. And the one who recognizes dimness and dullness isn't anyone else. He is your own fundamental identity. This is me giving medicine to suit the disease, having no other alternative, briefly pointing out the road for you to return home and sit in peace. And that's all. And that's a good place for us to stop now and recite four vows. without number I vow to The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.